Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is up? Welcome to the Los Angeles Dodgers podcast on the Believe Network. I am J.P. Hornstra with the Southern California News Group. Wishing you a happy opening day. Yes, finally. Dodgers are hosting the Arizona Diamondbacks tonight. Opening day across Major League Baseball. All 30 teams are in action today. Game one of 162. I, for one, am ready for this to count. So a lot of buildup in spring training to this moment. One of the bigger questions in spring training, as you all know, was who was going to replace Tony Gonsolin in the Dodgers rotation. And we got a little opening day surprise. Doesn't affect tonight's game. Doesn't even affect the next four games. But Ryan Pepio is not on the opening day active roster. Michael Grove is. Pepio had beaten out Grove for that fifth starter's job, replacing Gonsolin for what's expected to be the first three to four weeks of the season. And today we learned that Pepio, who I interviewed after his last start, sounded great, has an oblique strain. So he's going on the injured list. Michael Grove is getting that first start. I'm assuming it's in game five, but we are going to talk to Dave Roberts later today to find out. Other than that, today has been a pretty uneventful day for the Dodgers. The opening day roster was announced. No surprises other than Mr. Pepio subbing out Mr. Grove going over the boards. Just for the sake of completeness, the 13 pitchers on the opening day roster in alphabetical order, Yancy Almonte, Phil Bickford, Caleb Ferguson, Bruce Dark Gratterall, Michael Grove, Andre Jackson, Clayton Kershaw, Dustin May, Shelby Miller, Evan Phillips, Noah Syndergaard, Julio Urias, and Alex Vesia. 13 position players. Austin Barnes, Will Smith, J.D. Martinez, Freddie Freeman, Max Muncie, Miguel Rojas, Miguel Vargas, Mookie Betts, Jason Hayward, James Altman, David Peralta, Trace Thompson, and Chris Taylor. The opening day injured list. Walker Bueller, J.P. Fireisen. Shout out to the fellow J.P., Tony Gonsolin, Daniel Hudson, Gavin Lux, Jimmy Nelson, Ryan Pepio, Alex Reyes, and Blake Trinan. Gavin Lux goes on the 60-day IL in order to make room for Jason Hayward on the 40-man roster. There's your housekeeping for today. Sean Green will be joining me in one moment to talk about opening day, his memories of opening day as a player. And if you are in the neighborhood of Northeast LA like me, Watch out for that flyover at about 7 o'clock. That sound of a jet airplane buzzing overhead is in fact a jet airplane buzzing overhead. Be on the lookout. Hopefully, if you are at the game and you are listening to this beforehand, don't be afraid to say hi if you see me in the hallways. Always good to say hi to fans. Alright, that's enough for me. Let's bring on Sean. And now I'm pleased to welcome back Sean Green. Sean, happy almost opening day. 
Yeah, it's, it's quickly approaching. Exciting time. Yeah, we're here. You are a veteran of several opening days, and I just had the privilege of talking to four young Dodgers who made their first opening day roster. John, do you remember making your first opening day roster? How, how special was that? And, and, and when was that? If you still remember it, I'm sure it was a long time ago now. It was, thank you. <laughs> it, was, it was a long time ago. So I was called up for a month in 94. Well, I was called up in September of 92. I'm sorry, 93. And then um, actually snuck a World Series ring out of that, even though I didn't um, have anything to do with it with them winning the division or beyond, um, which was nice. And then 94, it's called up for a month, sent down, and then the strike happened. So 95, I made the team out of spring training, but spring training started a few weeks late. And opening day was the end of April instead of the beginning of April. Um, so that was a little bit of a bummer. Um, we opened up in Toronto. But what was really cool about it and super memorable was um, we were playing the Oakland A's and – as a kid, my favorite player, because I lived in the Bay Area from the time I was 5 to 12, which were kind of my biggest years of fandom. And so I loved Ricky Henderson. And he was in 95, he was back on the A's, and he was leading off. So my first opening day batter as I'm standing right field was Ricky Henderson. And he has such a, had such a distinctive crouch in, in, in his uh, batting stance. And um, it was just really, I felt, it was almost like an out-of-body experience saying, wow, I'm standing on the field. I felt like I should be sitting in the stands watching Ricky Henderson in an A's uniform. Uh, so that was really cool. Yeah. Um, I think I snuck one hit, stuck one hit in there. So uh, that's always good to get that. You want to get that zero, those zeros off the board as fast as you can. <laughs> well, that's interesting that you got your first World Series ring and your first strike out of the way before your first opening day roster. That's I don't know how many guys can say that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, what's crazy, too, is Rick, Ricky was actually on training over to the Blue Jays, so I played with him a little bit in Toronto those two weeks that I was uh, called up in, in that September. But, um, yeah, it was uh, it was definitely definitely not the norm to, to sneak a, a World Series ring and, and have a, you know, a um, very infamous work stoppage in, in sports history under my belt. Now I have to ask this because the oral history of Ricky Henderson as told by his teammates is actually a very fruitful genre of baseball writing. So I, I now have to ask, do you have a good Ricky story? I do. I, so he was amazing as a teammate. I, I thought he was great, especially with younger players. He's very, he's just a, he's just a great guy, just, you know, happy. But what was really funny, so then I played with him in 93 for a couple of weeks, then in, with the Dodgers in 2003, he was over for a couple months, um, which was cool. I mean, did you know he played for the Dodgers, by the way? You know, I think I might have actually covered a Dodgers game with Ricky Henderson in a Dodger uniform uh, yeah. in San Francisco uh, early in my career and, and quite late in his, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so Ricky was in L.A., and then I'm on the Mets to end my career in 2007, our hitting coach got fired, and they moved um, Hojo Howard Johnson went from being the first base coach to the hitting the new hitting coach. This is at the All Star break, and they brought Ricky Henderson in to be the first base coach. So yeah, so literally his his first day on the job, he you know I'm playing catch on the right field line. I, I always played with David Wright, and who's a young player, it's like his second or third year in, in the league, and um, he comes over to me. And Ricky, and he's standing next to Lastings Millage, 
I don't know who he was playing catch with. Um, but Ricky was just, they were just going back and forth talking the whole time. And David Wright comes up to me after. He's like, you would not believe this conversation I'm listening to. And he goes, Ricky is teaching last things. He's a rookie. How to catch a fly ball and snatch it down to his, his waist. You know, <laughs> and make it look, make it look extra special. Um, that's what his first day of coaching was teaching our first round draft pick rookie how to hot dog it in the outfield. Uh, and and if I'm not mistaken, Ricky Henderson's career as a first base coach was not very long. No, I mean that was I was just there the rest. I mean within that half season, and uh, I I don't think he was back the next year. Uh, but I mean honestly, if there's anyone who's pretty good at, at understanding whether or not a pitcher is going to pick over when good when a good time to go is, I think he's the guy. So it's a very good. So point. in theory. In theory, I mean, you could you couldn't ask for a better a better first base coach, right? Because there have been players as fast as Ricky in in baseball history. Oh, Not yeah. many, but there have been a few. But can they read the pitcher that well? I I don't know if anybody could. Yeah, no matter what you say about you know how talented a guy is, like people say the same thing about you know Manny Ramirez. You know, I'll tell you the guy. I, I don't know what his intelligence level is. I you know I've spoken to him a few times, but as a hitter, he's he is a genius. I mean, he's just really, really smart when he steps in the batter's box. You look at, at guys that have talent, there's tons of guys that have talent, but the guys who are able to to put up huge numbers consistently, there, there's more there than, than just speed or power or whatever it is. Sure, sure. Well, back, back to the occasion at hand, Sean. Does opening day uh, get any less special? Did it get any less special for you over the course of your career? Or was there always some kind of a feeling that, that opening day retained that the other 161 games didn't for you? So I have a probably different approach than most from perspective of opening of opening day. For me, I I mean I, it's very exciting, but I actually like opening day. I like game two because I I, just, I was all about getting down getting down to business, and I felt like it was just. You got like skydivers coming in. You got, you know, flybys and you know bands and this and that. There's like some celebrity thing in that. I just I just wanted to play baseball, and I felt like there's just too many distractions on opening day. This is like you know after a few years of it, um, and you know the the schedules kind of compressed. Like okay, batting practice is everything's a little different because you have to allow more time for all the ceremonies and this and that. So that was kind of my my take on it. Is I loved game two. Um, but the excitement of having your uniform, you know, kind of, you know, brand new uniform and all your gears fresh and, you know, they, every team, because of what happened, um, with the, the Black Sox scandal and Pete Rose, they had to read rule 21 to the team, which is no gambling. And that's part of it. So it's just like those little things are kind of, um, like, okay, it's go time. And, and that's, that's a good thing. But I think just in terms of wanting to like get down and really focus on baseball, it's hard to do that on opening day. Sure. Well, I mean, those giant American flags don't unfurl themselves. These things take time. Right. <laughs> exactly. They take time. Um, I'm a guy that's not like, you know, I'm not like a big fluff guy. Like I was like, okay, what are we here for? Let's, let's play baseball. And you know, I'm not, I'm not into kind of, and I, I, I get it. It's fun for fans to have, um, you know, especially, little kids come and they get to see, you know, the huge flag and it's, it's you know, it's cool to, you know, to, to see the flyby and all that. But 
it's not that that stuff's not cool. It's just like I'm, I want to play. I'm here to play baseball, and that's kind of what sure. I want to like get down to. Sure. Well, the skydivers have their job, and you've got yours. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this opening work. day though will be a little bit different than years past. I I don't know how many people actually tune into spring training to like get a sense for the new rules, but I think for a lot of people, for a lot of fans, uh, this will be the first baseball game that they watch with the pitch clock. Uh, this will be the first baseball game that they watch in a while without any shifting of three infielders on one side of second base. Uh, the bigger bases, frankly, I didn't notice them. I don't know if anybody else will, but they're out there. And I'm wondering if you have an opinion, uh, having had eh, six or so weeks of these new rules in place in spring training, obviously some pitch clock violations here and there, most of which were relatively inconsequential. How do you think all of this is going to play out this year? Yeah, it sounds like the reviews are great for the pitch clock. And I, you know, I think, you know, I, I think the rule changes are, you know, unfortunately the result of baseball going off in a, in a direction that, so focused on the numbers and the data that it's just late, you know, late in the games too much, all the shifting. It's, I think it's just, it's taken away from, um, it's become science as opposed to like the art. And I think, I think art can be in a lot of ways more entertaining. And so to speed it up, to keep the pace, all that stuff, you know, I think it was necessary. So I'm really, I'm a big fan of the pitch clock. Um, I think as a, especially when you're playing defense, um, there's nothing better than playing behind a fast pitcher, and now you're forcing everyone to be fast. So yep. that's great. The bases seem kind of, like you said, kind of in- inconsequential. I'm not, I, I really don't even have an opinion on that. It seems, that just seems kind of odd to me. And then the the other one, that the shifts, again, that's kind of a result of like, you know, going too far down the path of the analytics. And I don't know what most people say. I'm, I'm kind of in favor of it. I think, I think eliminating it. I, I'm not one, to, I don't think batting averages are going to skyrocket. A lot of people think, oh, you know, it's going to make a big difference. I don't think it's going to make that big a difference. But, you know, I guess time will tell. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I, I, I've seen some data that suggests batting average on balls in play is higher in spring training than it has been in years past. And that's almost certainly because there is not the exaggerated shift that we've had in years past. But what are we really talking about? We're talking about singles for the most part, singles that dribble through the infield. And, and how often does that actually lead to an extra run, right? Like some of the time, sure. But for the most part, it's not like it elongates the game a great deal. Uh, you'll see pitchers pitching from the stretch a little bit more, I guess. Um, but does a fan really notice an increase of five hundredths of a point of batting average? Like, I don't know, right? I, I, I don't think most fans will notice it in the end. Right. And I, I will say, as someone who, you know, I was really a student of hitting and loved um, analyzing the swing and and the way the traditional position, place position players are, if you take a good swing, I remember I had a teammate in L.A., I don't want to say his name, but he hit the ball hard a lot and he hit a lot of balls right at people. And the reason he mm. did is because he didn't have the right mechanics. Like his swing was very everything, upper half and lower half, everything just kind of came at the same time. When really what you want, like Tony Gwynn or Ichiro or all these great hitters, um, whether it's a power hitter, like Manny Ramirez or A-Rod, it's like what happens is the lower half kind of goes first and the upper half stays back longer. Mm. But what that happens, if you're Tony Gwynn, having the right swing, you're going to hit those holes. And like so I knew if I was in a slump, I was 
hitting bullets right at the second baseman, and I knew everything was coming at the same time, and I, my swing was wrong, whether or not you hit the ball in the barrel. And, and that, that was a beautiful part of the game um, that I think will, you know, will kind of, people will start to, to kind of re, relearn that again as they um, are kind of forced to, to hit a more traditional style field. That's so fascinating, and that would not have occurred to me. I'm very interested to see if, if this more standardization of defenses leads to that. That's a fascinating thought. I, I never thought about that that way. And, and I wonder how many hitters do think about it that way, right? We'll actually use the line drive right at the fielder as, as a gauge of their swing. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah, and it, well, that was, it was crazy. It's like if I was on, I could hit a line line shot bullet and it would be right at the first base or right at the, I mean if I was off it would be right at the first base or right at the second base and, yeah. and if you're on it's like everything's perfect in in all those holes around the infield so that that's it's, it was pretty it was pretty bizarre but that's it, you know obviously pitches in certain locations it, it might be a little different but the most part you know there's a reason why Tony Gwynn hit that ball between the third base and the shortstop and you can't say it's luck if he does it you know 200 times a year Right. It does it for 20 or 15 years, whatever it was. Right. So, yeah. So like those types of things, I think have kind of been lost. You don't really see too many like Tony Gwynn's, not that there were ever a ton of them, but you know, back in, in the eighties and nineties, I mean, there was Wade Boggs, Tony Gwynn, Don Mattingly, Ichiro, I guess he was two thousands, but there's, there's a lot of players that, you know, had Pete Rose and, and there's, there's probably like, seven or eight players at a time that were like 330 hitters, 320 hitters consistently. And it's because they, they had the right mechanics. Yeah. Honestly, I watch a lot of baseball and Freddie Freeman is probably the closest to what you're describing that I can think of in the modern game where he so consistently hits that ball to left center field as a left-handed yep. hitter that it just can't be a coincidence at this point. He, he no, of course skill and he's got it down pat. Yeah, and it's it's just good mechanics. It's, it's, it's not that, you know, I know a lot of people look at the shift like, oh, why can't the hitter just hit? And it's, if the mechanics are wrong, it's really hard to change it, you know, on the fly. Like you, you get, that's the thing about hitting is, you know, you know what you're doing wrong sometimes, and it might take weeks to, to finally, you know, find that timing because it has to be so so precise. And, you know, someone like Freddie has is, is got it figured out, but what makes him even better is that when it falls apart a little bit, he's able to get back to it faster than other guys are. Mm -hmm. Did you get shifted, and did that change over the course of your career? I got shifted more when I, on my bigger home, home run years. It's almost like back then, it's like, oh, this guy's hitting home runs, so let's just shift him. It was, there, I don't huh. think there was a lot of rhyme, rhyme or reason. And then if I wasn't hitting for as much power, they were they weren't shifting as much. Where'd they shift you? They, they stand in the bleachers? How do they defend yeah. against that? <laughs> yeah, no, they, they would have, you know, your typical, you know, third baseman playing shortstop and that's, that's kind of about it. And then maybe their second baseman, a few steps on the grass, but, um, it wasn't, I wasn't severely shifted. I actually, when I was playing well, I, as I said, when I played well, I'd, I'd hit the ball really all over. When I wasn't, it would, you could just stick a guy that's playing second base straight up and I'd probably go 0 for three. You know, hitting two, three ground balls right out. Like, that's just kind of how it was. See, I'm very interested to see how that rule in particular plays out 
I, I think I'm with you. Like the pitch clock is going to be as close to a universal positive as a new rule can be, at least among fans. Yeah. We'll see how players react to it. <laughs> I think for the most part, it's been positive among them too. So I'm with you. It's going to be an interesting season, and I can't wait for the flyovers to get finished. <laughs> That's right. No, it's going to be a fun season. Uh, you know, Dodgers are they're going to be good again. And it's nice. I think it's nice going in with a little, little more uncertainty and a little more parity in the division. It's great to always go in there and, and know your team that's the best in National League. But now I think there's there's more parity and, and the Dodgers are, are going to, you know, they'll get to the postseason, but they'll have to fight a little bit more and they'll probably be in a better mentality going for that World Series once they do get in the postseason. Yeah, we'll see how it plays out. I, I think the Dodgers have a good team. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm down for a little drama. Makes life easier as a writer, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, Sean, thanks for joining me as always. And uh, we'll talk once the games get rolling in the regular season again. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. All right. That will do it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining us as always. If you have not done so, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get this podcast. Always helps. I would be remiss if I did not plug my latest story for the Southern California News Group. Talk to Joe Davis, Dodgers broadcaster, about opening day, about calling the WBC, and about his awesome schedule. It goes from the World Series to the World Baseball Classic to opening day. No spring training in between. That's the life. All right, go check that out. Talk to you next week. Be well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.